Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is Bruce Kelly. Uh, Jeff Benjamin is out on other uh, duties and details this week. Um, but fear not, we got a great episode for you. Uh, we have two guests. Our first guest today is Karen Barr, the CEO of the Investment Advisor Association and a former lawyer, I just, I just learned. Um, so the Investment Advisor Association is a, is a prominent trade group, of course. Um, uh, based out of Washington, I believe, and it works with registered investment advisors. So, Karen, first off, um, uh, welcome and, and thanks for coming by the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bruce. Karen, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, we were talking before and you said you are a former attorney. Now you're the <laughs> CEO of this trade group, you know, which does some lobbying too, I would imagine, right? Absolutely. And lobbying on the behalf of, of the uh, RIA industry or the investment advice industry, as I sometimes call it. Um, so just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. How long have you been at the IAA and um, what does it do? Well, I've actually been at the IAA for almost 25 years, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, I started out as a securities attorney at um, what was then Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, what is now Wilmer Hale. Um, and I joined the IAA as its general counsel in 1997. I was the general counsel of our organization for 17 years. And when my predecessor, David Titsworth, um, retired, I put my hat in the ring and became the president and CEO of our organization. We are a trade association that advances the interests of fiduciary investment advisors. We uh, provide expertise, insights, connections, and advocacy on behalf of uh, the industry. We have more than 600 member firms that manage in excess of 25 trillion in aggregate, and they represent the whole gamut of the um, investment advisor uh, community from some of the largest asset managers in the world to the 10-person shops that make up the core of our industry and, and everything in between. Are, is the majority of your membership those kind of 5 to 10 to 15-person you know, wealth management firms out there, the ones that are getting all the, the heat and the attention in this kind of aggregator merger market craze that we're seeing? Right yes. <laughs> it is. Uh, we, we have, m most of our members are smaller firms, um, and we have seen quite a bit of M&A activity over the past year, and it's, it's only increasing. The market is, is hot for, um, for uh, wealth management RIA firms. Yeah, I mean, we've covered that in depth, you know, in the pages of Investment News, online in Investment News, Jeff and I in the podcast. The, the, what the private equity funds are looking for are these steady returns that these firms are able to kick off right now, right? This 25 to 30% uh, return um, uh, profitability that that um, a, a well-run, well-managed, uh, substantial RIA uh, sees right now. Absolutely. Steady returns, good business model, and loyal clients, um, loyal long-term clients, which are um, right. what we're here for, right? Um, you were in the Investment News RIA Summit, we're calling it, right? I think we've had... Yes, I was there this morning with, with your colleague, Mark Sheff. We had a great conversation about what's going on that's a virtual conference that we're having this week, that Investment News is having this week. And um, I think we had one earlier in the spring. 
in 2021. Um, and it'll be nice to be back in attendance uh, in person for these things. But online can be effective too. What did you all talk about with my colleague, Mark Sheff, the one and only Mark Sheff, who is a great guy and a great journalist on your panel? Uh, I would agree with that. Mark is a, is a great guy and a great journalist, and I very much enjoy working with him. We uh, talked about what is different um, at the SEC now versus in the prior administration. Right. Um, we talked about what is different at the Department of Labor and, and what's going on on Capitol Hill. What's your impression about the difference in in administrations between the Trump and the Biden administration? Of course, to, you know, Republican versus Democrat, but also two kind of totally different ways of managing Washington, right? One is the, the former president is this guy, the outsider. He's going to He's going to insert all kinds of people who, who many people are think are not qualified for different jobs um, into these into these uh, agencies. Um, and uh, one guy is a long time, you know, almost lifetime Washington guy in Biden. Right. Absolutely. And he knows he knows how Washington works. He's um, installed um, experienced personnel at the various regulatory agencies They've coordinated, they have a, a coordinated agenda across agencies. They were ready, you know, ready to go on day one. Um, they, um, even with the acting um, chairs of the agencies before the um, regular <laughs> permanent ones came in, right. um, they, they started their agenda immediately. Um, you know, day one, they're, they're issuing orders, they're walking back regulations and, and guidance from previously very, very coordinated effort. Um, you know, they installed climate, climate risk, climate change point persons across right. all of the agencies. That seems to be a real big push, right? From not only the SEC and how companies report, right? Uh, but from all agencies. From all agencies. They are laser focused on climate change and climate risk. Um, the, the SEC has already um, issued guidance, uh, putting the pressure on corporate issuers um, or, or rather, interpreted guidance, putting to get, putting the pressure on corporate issuers um, for disclosures on on climate. That's for public companies, I guess. For public right? companies, they're gonna they're gonna issue um, disclosure rules later this year. Um, not only are they gonna issue rules on climate risk and climate change, they are also gonna issue rules on human capital personnel and and diversity metrics. They're all they're gonna focus on asset manager disclosure and and how asset managers use terms like sustainable green net zero low carbon right um, kind of a truth in advertising approach they're going to really look closely to make sure that when advisors use those terms with their clients um, there's a structure and data and and information underlying it um, and that the clients are clear on what what they mean by all those all those terms. And that's, is that part of the SEC's new marketing rule um, or is that something different? That is something different. Um, the marketing rule came out in the prior administration. Okay. This administration is going to focus on, on um, marketing claims about sustainable investing. And they're going to be able to do that under a, a wide range of rules, including the anti-fraud rules, as well as the marketing rule. I'm curious about your impression. You know, you said you've been here at this trade association as CEO or head counsel, right, for 
a long Almost time, more than 20 25 years. 25 years. 25 years. I've been at Investment News for 21 years, right? So right. It's, it's, we're, we're loyal, if nothing else, Karen. <laughs> what is your sense of how diverse the population of, the, of you know, people who either own RIAs, because it is a very much an ownership type of business, right? Small to mid-sized business. Um, who own RIAs or work at RIAs or who are merging these RIAs? How how has it changed in terms of its diversity? Since there's so much emphasis on diversity, right? And right, and that's you know when you and I started, it was an overwhelmingly older male white population, right? Of financial. That's right. How, um, has that changed at all in your impression over the past two decades? Um, it's changing. Um, it is changing. It's not changing that rapidly, I would say. Right. Um, but it is changing. It, it is changing, um, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. It's it's changing very gradually, I would right. say. Um, there's still there are there are more um, advisors and client facing and and um, portfolio managers and financial planners that are um, women and and persons of color. But at the ownership level, at the leadership level, um, not. The, the progress has been very slow and right. a lot more progress needs to be made. Right. What is the uh, Investment Advisor Association's um, position on that? Do you have any kind of programs or outreach or, I mean, what do you do if you're saying there needs to be some change? What is the, what is your trade association and some of the, and some of your partners, you know, what are you, what are you doing about this? Um, we, have a DEI initiative, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. Okay. Um, we've uh, we have a dedicated group of members that worked together to put um, put together a guide for um, investment advisors starting their diversity and inclusion journey. <laughs> um, and at various points along the way, it's it's a great um, toolkit um, for advisors. It, um, we also are working on the data. We partnered with Ceruli to um, conduct a survey of financial professionals. Um, and and not, not surprisingly, they identified a lot of barriers um, to entry into progress in, in, our, in our industry. Um, we are also supporting legislation on Capitol Hill that would um, allow the, these offices of minority women and inclusion at the SEC and other regulators to um, mandate that firms respond to data collection requests on, on um, diversity at their firms. Right. Right, now, right now, those offices can request information, but it's just voluntary that right. firms respond, and they have not gotten much response. So we support legislation that would let them require firms to provide the information, um, at least to start larger firms. Yeah, so, I think I think getting, first of all, understanding, you know, who's working where and doing what is pretty important, right? It is foundational. It is foundational right. to have the data and you, you can't make progress unless you measure where you are and where you're going. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a column about this over the summer and much of my focus traditionally at investment news has been brokerage firms, but over the past few years, I've been writing about RIAs too, uh, because my boss at the time asked me to, and also because it's all kind of swamping together, you know, um, right. the financial advice industry. And 
you know, a few of the big firms, Merrill Lynch and, and some of the others, they've released kind of scattershot data, you know, about mm-hmm. diversity and the like, but they've only done it as a one-off and they don't share information with each other and the trade organizations, you know, the big, you know, SIFMA and the like, they're not responsive, you know, when you ask them uh, because the progress has been so bad, <laughs> I think. Right. I mean, I remember going to Boca Raton 20 years ago at the old SIA, Securities Industry Association, and having Stan O'Neill from Merrill Lynch there saying, yeah, you know, the industry is only 15 percent women and 10 percent minority and we need to, to improve that. Right. And they would put out a study and then, you know, 20 years later, it's 20% women and 11% minority. Right, right. Now it's, you know, um, it, as, I was, as far right. as we can tell, because they won't progress. tell us. Right. 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 No, I, um, I absolutely, it's, um, there's not a lot of transparency um, there. Uh, I do think people are not happy with the progress that have been right. made so far. And so it's, you know, well, nothing. Appalling. To, I mean, I think right, you can just it's, say it's appalling. appalling, right? It's appalling. And um, in fact, to the point of, of nothing changing, Morningstar um, issues data on women portfolio managers. And right. it's something like 10 or 11% of portfolio managers at the fund complexes are women. And they just did an updated study. And it has not changed at all, not at all right. in the last several years. Uh, so, um, you know, it's not, that's not even just slow progress. It's, it's no progress. It's no progress. It's funny too, because I think most of the advisors out there would want to have a more diverse, you know, workplace because you get a diversity of people, you get a diversity of ideas, right? Um, absolutely. A diversity the- of, you know, uh, backgrounds and, and thoughts and impressions, you know, to run your business. So that's right. A, a diverse set of views and perspectives is good for business. And yeah. it's, it's um, hard that we still have to make that case <laughs> in 2021. Right. Um, the, the, you know, so-called business case for it, but it's there, all the studies and data are there. Um, it helps business. It helps retain clients. It helps attract new clients. It, it's good for um, idea generation and um, firms that are more diverse are doing better. Kind of getting on to another current topic uh, or hot topic, right? Which is a phrase I hate to use, but uh, <laughs> just cryptocurrencies and 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 the like, um, and Bitcoin and RIAs. When you have again, this is something that I think the industry. Just what are you seeing from your perspective? When I talk to heads of these big RIA groups you know, which are almost like the old regional brokerages to me. Um, They're from 20 years ago, the Dane Rauschers and the Advests and the like to talk about ancient history. These (laughs) these, um, RAs have become these regional or super regional investment advice firms. They're all, they all want to offer cryptocurrency of some kind or Bitcoin to their clients, but they kind of don't know what to do or or are afraid to take the leap. What is, what are you hearing from your, members and and what are they thinking? Our members are getting a lot of questions from their clients and they're, I would say on, on the whole, our members are fairly plain vanilla, if you will, in, in what kinds of um, securities that they invest in for their clients. So I think there's 
um, some skepticism about digital assets, um, but they are being um, prodded in some ways to learn more about it by all the questions they're getting from their clients. Right. So we're, we are offering education to our members. We just had our leadership conference last week and we had a, um, a session, a, a terrific session um, on digital assets. The, and they, they conducted some polling during the session and the polling definitely indicated some skepticism of the audience, I would say. Um, but the, you know, it's out there, it's real clients are asking about it and, and advisors need to educate themselves. Even if they're not going to recommend it, they have to be able to answer their clients questions. Right. So we're, there's a a group out there called, um, digital advisor council, um, or sorry, digital assets council. Um, and we've partnered with them to provide education to our members, um, so that they can learn more about the nitty gritty of what uh, digital asset investment involves. I remember we had we used to have um, from time to time, you know, years ago, we used to have meetings at Investment News and bring in groups of local financial planners. And so, and say, you know, and just have kind of off the record, you know, what's going on in the industry type of conversations, which are very helpful to reporters, right? Because you mm-hmm. understand what people are dealing with in their jobs and what their questions are and what their concerns and what they're hearing too through their networks. And um, I remember meeting in 2008 or 2009 when the world was kind of collapsing uh, at that time. Um, and I'm sure you recall that uh, vividly. The mm-hmm. uh, Talking to some financial planners and, and one of the questions we asked this group was what kind of blogs or online you know, reading do you do? Websites do you read? And they all looked like in shock. You know, when we asked, <laughs> they're a little older, I have to admit. <laughs> there were some older New Yorkers, you know. Well, well, I, I, think blogs. I don't read a blog. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've never heard of blogs. I read the New York <laughs> Times, you know. I mean, so. Right, right. <laughs> no, I, I think... Again, as a journalist, you want to keep up on current blogs and things to get yeah, information that's... and to see what's going, what people are discussing in the market. And so I just think of this whole crypto thing, like almost in the same light, I think. Right. I mean, it's, it's hard to keep up with all of the different um, twists and turns that the, the crypto industry is, is taking. Right. Um, but, but members want to learn. Um, they want to be able to they respond have to, to learn, clients. Think, they have to right? learn. Right. Yeah. Um, and they are, you know, they're conservative on behalf of their clients, right. They're not, they don't want to do anything um, yes. uh, overly risky, right? Um, so they're, you know, they want to make sure they they know their stuff before they answer questions or invest in it for their clients. And that's all the fiduciaries for crying out loud, right? Exactly, that's how it should be. <laughs> so um, it, it's going to take some time to to you right. know, digest all of these developments. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, and, and just finally, uh, final question here for you. What's, what's coming up in the last quarter, do you think? What should advisors be looking for and what is your association doing for, for advisors as we finish up uh, the last three months of the year here? Definitely keep on the lookout for a cybersecurity proposal from the SEC. Okay. Um, that that's is, big, right? That's big. That's yeah. going to be coming in the next couple of months. Um, we are going to be advocating for um, advisors to make sure that the cybersecurity guidance is helpful 
um, but right-sized to, to the size of, of and capability and, and risks of, of firms right. and not a one-size-fits-all. Um, we will definitely continue to be working with our members on implementation of the marketing rule. Um, even though there's a year to go on that, there's an incredible amount of work to be done and they need to be starting now. Um, we are also going to be, we, we have been working with our members on uh, the DOL fiduciary um, exemption that comes into effect um, in December. Um, so firms have to comply with it pretty quickly. We've, we've asked the DOL for a six-month extension um, to give firms extra time to get ready. Um, but our members are, are already fiduciaries. So really the, the only place the rule comes into play for the most part with them is the rollovers. Um, but it's a right. lot of, it's going to be a, um, a lot of uh, effort and, and lift to get the right information from clients to be able to compare options. Um, well, that was one of the big um, the pushes or the impetus, right, behind the whole darn rule to begin with was these rollovers, right? That, that's right. That's right. And so they're in scope and clients just don't have the information about their retirement accounts um, that advisors need to be able to conduct this analysis. Um, So it's, it's going to be very challenging to get the right information. Well, Karen, obviously you got your plate full. I think everyone in in your association, you know, they have their plates full and they're not, they're also getting, you know, uh, uh, knocks on the door from every private equity manager out there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think someone I was listening to the, to the uh, RIA summit, and I forget who it was one of the custodian uh, uh, executives. And they were saying, you know, he's hearing that, you know, and when, when these deals used to happen, there'd be two or three private equity funds fighting over a firm. And now there can be a dozen. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we just had our leadership conference last week and we had a panel on, on M&A and one of the, um, you know, one of the participants referred to the market as frothy. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's that's what we're seeing and hearing. It, it's going to be a very busy M&A market between now and the end of the year. And and people are obviously being driven by, you know, tax changes and right. um, extra PE capital lying around <laughs> ready to invest. <laughs> well, I think, you know, people like to say it's the tax changes, but I'm telling you, I just think it's the it, it's the private equity managers have this industry in their sights and they're yes. just going. Yeah. Not so. Yeah. It's a great industry. Yeah. It's a great business to be in. Um, clients are, are really appreciative of the value of fiduciary advice and more and more clients are, are seeking fiduciary advice. So right. it is, it's a great business to, to be in and, and great mission serving clients. As long as the advisors can maintain those fees, Karen. Well, you know? <laughs> Again, that's the topic Jeff we'll and I have raised. We'll, so I had, we'll, to, add, we'll I had to add that little caveat there. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see we'll see whether there's whether there's pressure on on fees, but um, it's interesting that there is a lot of pressure on fees in the asset management um, yes. industry. But that really that same kind of pressure has not really affected the wealth management RIA side yet. I think a lot of people were betting that it was, but. Well, you know, mutual funds, the fees on mutual funds have gone down dramatically, right? Absolutely, right. Um, it really hasn't had, it's it's just been very uh, uh, on the margins, I guess you would say, for uh, 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 an RIA wealth management type of firm. 
right? We are seeing alternative kinds of, of yes. um, structures that, that firms are coming and up with. And more services too, right? More services, right? More services, different kinds of fee arrangements, um, expanding concierge services, um, tax, estate, right. um, family, family office, family succession planning for, right. for um, you know, intergenerational. There, there's a lot of additional services and value that advisors are offering. Well, that's why these big aggregators are, that's part of the, the, uh, the proposition, right, that they're making to the firm, the $10 billion firm is making to the $500 million firm, right? Look right. all the services that we have. That, that's right. And, and we're providing back office support and we're right. letting you do your jobs interacting with clients and, and providing them frontline advice. Right. Um, it, it's a very attractive um, proposition to, to quite a few people. And they're also obviously in terms of the demographics of the industry, a lot of people are looking for succession planning. Yes. All right, Karen. Well, thank you again. Thank you, Bruce. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Whether you run an RIA or you're an independent broker dealer affiliated advisor, if you're looking for news and information about the advisory sector, practice management, or the nuts and bolts of mergers and acquisitions, Scott Hansen, co-founder of Allworth Financial, hosts the State of the Industry podcast, which you can learn about at allworthpartners.com. Hansen was one of the 11 people who earlier this year were named to the Investment News list of icons and innovators for 2021. And his firm, Allworth Financial, has been named one of the five fastest growing RIAs in America. A recent episode of the State of the Industry podcast featured a conversation about the impact of next year's pending capital gains tax increase with Skip Schweiss, president of the Financial Planning Association. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and by searching Allworth Financial's State of the Industry podcast, you can also listen in at allworthpartners.com. Hey there, we're back. And for our second segment, our second interview of the of the day, we are speaking to Investment News' very own technology reporter, Nicole Kasperson. Kasperson, excuse me. She's been working on a cover story that's running on on one of the most familiar topics, I think, in uh, the financial advice industry and technology, which is that old saw account aggregation. So, Nicole, welcome back to the podcast. I'm sure Jeff is sorry he's not here. We always have a good time chatting with you. Um, And uh, uh, you're very welcome. But we're going to be talking about account aggregation today, right? Right. Yes. Hi. Thank you, Bruce, for uh, inviting me on again. And let's try to make, you know, the talking about account aggregation about as interesting as possible. That's the idea of the, the cover story. The thing that I'm wondering about is what's new here because Jeff loves to talk about how many decades he's been in this business. (laughs) Uh, And I've (laughs) been here almost as long as he has about 30 days less. And uh, it just seems like this is a perennial problem. Wouldn't it be solved by now? Well, first of all, what is account aggregation? What's the state of the market today? And what do advisors usually see in front of them? And then, and then, uh, uh, 
let's just take it from there, I guess, for, for sure, based on for your sure. research. Absolutely. So account aggregation or the process in which data from many or all of an individual's household financial accounts are connected in one place, a key component of this growing tech ecosystem, which is really emerging with the ultimate goal of increasing wallet share by building systems that unify a client's entire financial world into that single platform. So why are we talking about this now? The writing you're correct, Bruce. It's been on the wall for years and years and years. Um, the kind of pioneer of this idea, his name is Len Reinhardt. He's been talking about this for like 20 plus years. So why are oh we talking about Oh my gosh. This? I know. Did you talk so to our... Len Reinhardt for this story? I did. I did. He's quoted in the piece and I'm about to t- give you some knowledge about what he just said. Man, I, lo- I love Len. I used to talk to him, gosh, you know, a long, many, many years ago. It's wonderful <laughs> to know that he's that Len is still up and running. He got this all started with um, what Smith Barney back mm. in the back in the nineties or or something. Yeah, right? yeah. Lockwood. So, Lockwood was his firm, right? Yeah. So you know, and what he did is help me kind of connect the dots as to why we're talking about this now again. Hmm. And a lot of it has to do with simply just the maturing technology that we have today, right? Technology and just the vast amounts of data that we have today compared with twenty plus years ago, right? Um, So that's one aspect of it. Technology is changing and maturing. Financial planning software is at um, a level as never seen before. And combine that, a maturing technology base, with a generational wealth transfer, with more millennials and Gen Zers in the fold, an investor appetite for more customized experiences and things um, of interest like uh, ESG investing. Um, you know, right. advisors today, they're held to a higher standard and they need to automate the coordination of all of these accounts to give suitable advice that will become table stakes within the next five years, which is some of the sources in my story um, is what they're saying, right? Can I hold you to that? Uh, you can hold some of my sources to that because I just <laughs> I just write what they say and then it's true. Well, do you agree like with that? Do you really think it's, <laughs> it's an attainable? Yeah, but I'm asking for your analysis, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Do you think it's attainable in five years if I'm a... LPL advisor or if I'm an independent RIA and I use Pershing or Schwab or someone, you know, that that I can actually hook up the various brokerage accounts, the 529 accounts, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I mean, think about it. There's already technology out there that's doing it, right? So, you know, Amazon already does this, i.e. connects, you know, a large amount of a consumer's data that they're able to collect and is able to present to them a suggested next best action, is able to do that. Amazon, I already said Amazon, Apple already does that. Netflix does that. Um, so, you know, the e-commerce, e-commerce industry already is doing this and driving value through its use of data to prompt its consumers uh, with suggestions and perspectives on what they could be doing next. I definitely believe, I would say maybe even in three years, um, you know, even less than five years, financial advisors, they can definitely do this and they will be held to a similar standards. So the technology is already there. Um, and, and there's no reason why we can't apply this to, to our industry and financial services as well. I'm going to throw you a couple of interesting data points as to why, you know, this is even more prominent today. Please, I gra- throw. Yeah, no, I I will throw them at you. I grabbed this from an uh, EY, Global Wealth Research Report. So over half, 53% of wealth management clients are willing to pay more for personalized service. Mm -hmm. And in exchange for greater personalization, the majority of wealth management clients, 71%, are willing to share personal data with their primary wealth manager, a higher portion than those willing to share personal data with doctors, retailers, technology firms, or media platforms. Like, 
people are more willing to share their personal data and like be like, here's everything you need to know about me for the love of God, make my finances work better for me than they are to like do that with a doctor. Um, and that to me is, you know, such an important piece of this, right? So it's not just the, that technology is at this place, but the consumer is at this place where they're willing to provide this level of data sharing. You know, 20 plus years ago, Bruce, were you, I was, you know, barely in existence. Were you, you know, you were in so kindergarten kind of, or something. Yeah, believe, yeah right? you know, I existed, but like in kindergarten, were you like <laughs> 20 years ago, Bruce, were you like super comfortable sharing like every single aspect of your data, of your personal data, you know, on an online platform? I had a banking account. I had my checking and savings account at Citibank. I had my IRA at Citibank and that, and those were my three linked investments. And then I had my retirement account at our former owner, Crane Communications, right? So I guess those were, I didn't have a mortgage at the time. So I guess those were my four big, you know, areas where my, my cash and my, you know, meager, meager wealth holdings <laughs> of mutual <laughs> funds and the like were, you know, so I kind of just was a consumer who had everything running through Citibank, at the time. Mm -hmm. That was my option, basically. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't, uh, think to have an online brokerage account or anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. So right. even though and people were definitely doing that at the time I came, uh, that was, uh, you know, after the peak of day trading, you know, and mm -hmm. you would meet, you, you know, the, the online brokerage E-Trade and the like were born from the day traders of the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's a good perspective to think about, you know, the reason why automation and data and even artificial intelligence, which obviously is the thing that powers all this, um, the reason why it's so interesting today, despite the fact that, you know, artificial intelligence or automation, all these things are talked about for so long. Um, what makes it so interesting today is the fact that because there's so much more out there and because of what we talked about, people are willing to share, then that gives technology the ability or this technology, the ability to take notes from each other so that data can convert insights and appropriate actions over to the course or over the course of like the accumulation or drawdown of assets. So that's like the idea. Um, but that's why AI is so interesting today or why data connectivity right. is so interesting today. There's simply just more of it. Like there's so much more of it that um, these things are possible and the technology is mature enough to connect it. Now, I saw that, that you spoke with Judd Mackerel for your story. I missed the Len Reinhardt quote, uh, but, mm. I, I, but I saw that you spoke with Judd, and Judd left Carson Group recently mm -hmm. for his startup. And uh, I know Ron Carson and Carson Group, they uh, like to compare their technology to uh, as being akin to an Amazon type of an experience. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you really, have you got, have you seen... Any, you know, you're you're saying this could come, but have you seen any of these platforms that make you think, yeah, this wealth management firm, it does look like Amazon, it does look like um, my Apple, mm -hmm. you know, store or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the incumbents have been working, or a couple of them that I spoke with, uh, Morgan Stanley, for one, has been working on this with their wealth desk platform right. for for years, and um, you know uh, Merrill Lynch as well, and Wells right. Fargo. But how close are they? Are those platforms just in your mm. takeaway from it to using 
you know, going to Amazon and shopping. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's still a lot of room for the APIs or the application program interfaces to be okay. a little bit more uh, on the same on the side of like, oh gosh, I don't want to say Robinhood. But, you know, like the, the apps right. out there that are a little bit more um, just have kind of the aesthetic of, um, oh, this is like a fun, interesting thing, right, to, to get into. I think that some of the um, like banking apps, you know, like the Money Lions or the Stashes or whatever out there, they're not doing a similar thing. But what they're doing is really showing what an interface can look like via a mobile phone that's really, really interesting and, and fun. And those are ones that, you know, you can go out and play with. Um, but kind of going back to Judd and what he did, right. um, so he literally created an integration as a service company. It's called Mile Marker. That's what he right. left Carson Group for. And you know him and his wife, Kim, what they're doing is super interesting. It's literally like a way to prove that you know big data can help financial planning be better and you know, what ends up happening is that most firms have these really silos of data that are left either unused or they just like hang around. I don't know where they, they like float around in the ether. And, but the thing is, is that getting it all to be central to, to connect is exactly what he created. Like he literally created something that is meant to solve this issue. Obviously I have, I'm not an RIA and I don't get to see how it, right. how it works or whatever. Maybe that's like a, the next fun thing to do, right? Like have someone actually, should I like go in shadow and RIA using something like this one of these days? Maybe when the pandemic's over, right? Or like. But you do I, see previews of these platforms though. I mean, yeah, you do yeah, get yeah. test runs and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I see demos. I see demos and. Demos rather. Um, yeah. For sure. I mean, one of the more interesting. So it sounds like, kind of like you're saying the industry is maybe like a quarter of the way there or a third of the way there. On these big it's, platforms, I mean, I you know that's I don't know if that's stupid of me to try mm, to put no a yeah no I hear you it's range probably, or something so like Morgan Stanley was has been working on this uh, for some time they launched Wealthdesk their platform to address the the tech ecosystem and right like a, and a unified managed uh, accounts and account aggregation um, in 2018 but um, their heads of financial planning and Wealthdesk who I spoke with and for the story they started working on it three years prior to that. So they've been working on this. It was a big effort there. They put a lot of time and money into it. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They did. And, um, you know, like, and one of the things that they, that's what I learned from, from uh, Rose and Rose and Eric, um, who I spoke with for this story. They, you know, that's where I learned that it's really the, you know, maturing technology Um, as a, as a legacy system, they had to completely rebuild their house. They had to, um, you know, redo everything basically and they have to do it in such a methodical way so that it's not just you know when you have such a huge client base you can't just like rip a band-aid off and be like hello we have a new thing like no that's gonna like freak (laughs) everyone out you have to like be super um strategic with well the system could stop working yeah exactly that's that's the big danger for these huge institutions Yeah, exactly. And Michael, they could, you know, their trading could get, they could freeze in the middle of, you know, a hugely active day, right? Mm-hmm. In trading and then whoops, you know. I mean, guys, we've seen Facebook go down and Instagram for a whole day. Right. Anything's possible. Right. So I, like, I can imagine any any major uh, tech company can go down, right? And, and terrible things, especially when it has to do with money, like Facebook. Well, during, to- you know, the, the uh, trading frenzy for uh, GameStop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and, right, and AMC and the like, right? We had trading glitches on the major uh, um, 
uh, discount brokerages uh, around this too, right? We had trading mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. So they happen, you know, um, totally. and you don't want them to happen by something that you do, I think, no. for these firms. If there's a huge trading rush that your systems like, um, that your systems can't handle, then, then that's a problem. Like Robinhood had that, right? So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but if you create it yourself because you're trying to improve something, that's, that's your, your, it's like your puncture, uh, you know, your create, your, your puncturing your own tire of your car or something on purpose. Right, right. And that's like the big difference between like incumbents with big legacy systems. So the Morgan Stanleys, the right. Wells Fargo's, the Merrill Lynch's, they have to be so much. It's why you don't really hear them necessarily talking about something like this, especially today, right? They're like a little bit more behind the scenes, a little bit more like working um, kind of incrementally. To, to build to build this thing out so Morgan Stanley built re, redid the house they they rolled out wealth desk and they're constantly moving to you know make that more more innovative to look like that Amazon or Apple experience right. that we're talking right. about uh, Wells Fargo you know they they brought in e-money and, and right. they're leveraging that platform and bringing that in for their like 1300 or 13,000 uh, 13,000 13,000 yeah. I was about to say 1300 is not right 13,000 advisors and um so the difference in the, then in the story, I go into also, you know, the wealth techs. I think the wealth techs are the ones taking the headlines today while some of the incumbents are like chilling and doing, well, they're not chilling. They're working really hard, but you know what I mean? Like they're not maybe necessarily grabbing all the headlines right now, but right now it's like the Orions, the Investnets, the Invest Clouds, the Asset Marks, like what they're doing is because they aren't a legacy system and because they're like newer fintechs, um, you know, one could almost consider them like late stage startups, right? So they're- right. Um, basically what they're doing is they're all kind of like in this like race, right. To, to snap up smaller fintechs and build, right. There's like a say, like a lot of, I think one of the sections of my story is, you know, build or buy. And that's the difference between like the incumbents and the, the wealth techs, so the techs, uh, the fintechs out there right. that are really having a, sh- I almost swore, have a lot of M&A <laughs> activity. I'm sorry. I'm like, hi, I'm in a professional podcast. Um, <laughs> can I say it? Anyway, PG-13, uh, I didn't say I saw myself. Um, they okay. have so many M&A activities happening. Right. Well, um, build or buy, that's the perennial question for exactly. any type of startup business. Right, but yeah. the but the, the wealth techs and the, the Orion's investments, can, they're buying, right? They're, they're buying things, you know, uh, Orion bought hidden levers for their risk management and they're dealing with their, you know, their merger with uh, Brinker Capital and all right. this stuff. And, and, you know, I talked to their, um, to one of their, their folks, Jason Moore, and, and he was letting me know how for them it's like, well, if we buy, we can go to market faster. So it's like literally like the complete opposite of what the incumbents are doing, you know, where they're like slow and steady. The fintech wealth techs out there are like, you know, hurry up and buy. Right. Let's get right. this thing, you know, to market as fast as possible. Let's get this rocking. Um, yeah. But they have room to do that because they are younger. They have a little bit more, you know, le- less red tape to go through, not as massive um, right. user bases. So that's kind of the other aspect of the story. So I talk about the why, which we've kind of touched on, and then also kind of pinpointing a couple of the firms out there that are really, you know, generating the competitive landscape around these, you know, technology ecosystems. Right. Not to be cynical too, the big firms are investing in this so heavily because, and Morgan Stanley did make a big deal about this three Mm -hmm. years ago when it it got, what's it called? What's the thing called? 
Morgan Stanley. Wealth Desk. Wealth Desk. They made a big deal about that. They want to, um, they're afraid of their advisors leaving and becoming mm. independent RIAs or going to competitors where they can get a higher uh, uh, payout or percentage of the of the revenue they produce. And so if they have a better uh, platform, uh, they can uh, tie the advisor and the advisor's clients more closely to uh, the big firm. To, mm-hmm. So they have that in their strategy for this as well, I would argue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's also just helpful, you know, for our readers to, um, this is, you know, a super comprehensive view of what is, you know, not necessarily a new concept, but, you know, showing people right. why it's worthwhile and why it is somewhat new today. Why it's what, a, yeah, it's a nice update to an old problem. Exactly. And what has ha- what's going on in the tech world that makes this so important. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's really outside of like cryptocurrency, which uh, I already did that, tackled that one um, for a cover. There's really, you know, this is it. This is like the big right. behemoth story that everyone is, is working on, in, at least in our direct you know, wealth tech space, right? And, and and with financial planning being so much more prominent and the value proposition and customization and ESG and everything, like all of this is coming together. If you uh, can't, uh, I guess, beat them, join them in a sense, right? When it comes to like the incumbents and the and the wealth techs. And um, I think at the end of the day, though, it's in my personal opinion, I think uh, when it comes, comes to investors and, our, and, and advisors, you know, they're all just going to go to, the platforms that they just end up liking the most. So right. it's like, you might as well just have something out there for, as a tech provider, you should have something available uh, in this realm for advisors out there. Because if you don't, you know, they'll go down across the street and they'll go somewhere else. Yeah. Cause there's so many options right now. Right. And I think niche markets are super important. I think, um, you know, just having the right messaging and storytelling or marketing or whatever it is for your firm to say, Hey, like this is, what you can be a part of and this is what we have so yeah like the better messaging out there the better your firm will be you know at least from the tech provider side to, to snatch up some more advisors and you know keep growing on on this uh tech ecosystem that we have gearing up here well thank you very much nicole that was a ton of buzzwords too in there boy my ears that was my goal at the end of this i you're, you're lucky we didn't talk about the client protection side of this because then i would have just yelled cybersecurity. Okay. Let's, the whole time. Added one let's, more. Uh... Let's quit while we're ahead, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very good. much, Nicole, for dropping by. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Bruce, for having me. And, uh, no, Nicole, I'll sign off to you instead of Jeff because he's not here. So, Nicole, if it's Monday, that means it's time for another Investment News podcast. Uh, first of all, we want to thank our sponsor, All With Financial, and its State of the Industry podcast. We also want to say thank you to Karen Barr of the Investment Advisor Association and Nicole, thanks for dropping by once again. We also want to give a shout out to Steve Lamb, our very own producer. You can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on Apple, follow us on Spotify. You can reach Jeff and say, hey Jeff, where are you? Uh, at Benji Ryder on Twitter. Me, I'm at PD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.